0: No days, introducing the original blood clad podcast not players Soothing Semantics Special dedication, all the way from New York Boom, yeah man, S W O T, semantic, ot Semantics Yeah man now, bum, soothing Semantics Yeah man no. big ups to the man now, soothing Semantics
1: On another episode of Soothing Semantics, I am your host, Rafi Pinsky. Today on the show, we have Elena. Welcome, Elena. How are you?
0: I'm very well. How are you?
1: Not bad. Not bad at all. It's a wonderful day in the the sunshine state. So without further ado, we want to go into a bit of Elena's earlier years and how sh- how she went from... Uh, doing practicing law to neuroscience to going into neuroscience so tell us tell us how you were once an attorney and are now a brain person
0: um, so that's a very common question that i am being asked uh, thank you for asking so I come from a very small town in Russia from the far east of Russia where um, in the beginning where I was uh, in my teen ages uh, I was very interested in the matters of state and human relationships, actually, the history of human civilizations and how people came together to, in, to organize states and law, mm. to have rules uh, amongst themselves in order to progress and evolve. And this was my big passion. I went to law school when I was 16. I honestly, I think I didn't have such a great experience with um learning science uh, it was not invigorating enough for me in my early ages
1: how did you go see this happens in other countries it's more a, of a common thing where i hear of somebody graduating from college at like 14 you <laughs> went to you started law school at 16 cuz most american well, all americans for the most part are still in school in high school at 16 they don't go they then they have to do Four years of undergrad and then law school. So they're not in law school till their mid-20s usually. So how does that work?
0: It's just a different <laughs> educational system. And um, usually in Russia, we graduate from high school around age 17 and go straight for a specialized school, whether it's medical school a law school or um, engineering, whatever it is that uh, is specialized you don't have to do the
1: whole bachelor's degree thing you just skip it
0: no mm-mm. yeah you just um you just specialize immediately looks like i <laughs>
1: not because it's a lot of student debt it's a
0: little late now <laughs> i mean In you know, I'm, not, I'm not going i'm not going to, i'm not going for law but
1: maybe my kids no honestly i wouldn't move to russia but that's per, that's i guess that's one perk
0: Indeed, yes, there it is. is, although I was so young so twenty age twenty one I was already a lawyer, and um, I went to work as a lawyer, although what truly moved me from being a lawyer to becoming a scientist was uh the personal personal event, which was uh, the passing away of my mother, which was very rapid and unexpected when I was seventeen, so it was right first year after my law school. And it was so unexpected, like she passed away in um, three days. Mm -hmm. And it had a huge impact on me in the ways that I had to really reevaluate the reality and very much to understand, or was called to understanding life and death. And in that quest, I've read many philosophy books, esoteric books and been drawn to popularized science and some movies on quantum physics and so and involvement of consciousness, integration of reality. That ignited my interest in um, truly understanding life and I've learned about sort of like the biochemistry of emotions from popularized documentaries such as What the Bleep Do We Know? and I can't remember the other ones, but I've read some books that uh, also really gave me a different perspective, and I was really drawn to understanding it deeper rather than being lost in esoteric teachings mm-hmm. and to truly you know, have a basis of uh, scientific method in um, my understanding of reality where I could merge the two, merge the spiritual experience and experiential, evidence of perceiving this world through personal through personal experiences and the understanding of the science. So I've had this goal and I decided to pursue a different another degree. So I had to start in a way from scratch. I had to start from all the basic sciences and calculus and chemistry and uh, physics and uh, I wanted to move and study the United States So, at age 23, I uh, managed to, through a series of synchronistic events, I managed to arrive to Alaska, and this is where I started my degree. Mm -hmm. In Alaska, I also, uh, so I got a degree in biochemistry. You liked uh, Alaska? I loved Alaska a lot, yes. Although, for somebody who is (laughs) in early 20s, it's quite an isolating place to be. It's a very nice family place, I think, or it's a... Nice place for solitude. Yeah. Yeah, if you're
1: the kind of person that really doesn't care to... so I mean, I'm going to be wrong. I, I've never been there. But I feel like every non-Alaskan's perception of Alaska, which I think is probably accurate, is it's this, this freezing cold place. <laughs> there's a lot of fishing. There's a lot of beautiful scenery. But that's what it is you think of solitude and a lot of
0: quiet this is an interesting very interesting point anytime you ask anybody about oh what is it like right what are you really asking you i'm going in a little bit into neuroscience what are Mm -hmm. you really asking is, what is your perception and personal experience of it like because it might be on average on average on the bell curve there could be some similar reports of experiences but then it truly comes down to your personal reality Mm-hmm. So in my reality, it was such that I actually loved the place. I love mountains. I love connecting with the nature. But it was also the experience of constantly working and studying and working so hard and being an immigrant. I mean, I'm not even going going to go into detail, plus dealing with cold and um, a lot of other things that become in prison layer after ra- layer in my experience that made it a little more miserable. Than it could have been. Like it could have been a much more beautiful experience, and it was. It still is in the perception. Well, what was
1: miserable about it?
0: The cold.
1: Well, you aren't you used to a that? A lot of work, honestly. the
0: darkness. <laughs> well, yes, it doesn't mean that I like
1: it. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it felt like Russians are just kind of used to it. It's like that. you know,
0: of It's like nation. that weird,
1: that tough connection, you know, kind of in New York where it's freezing during the winter and it builds this tough exterior. Yes. This Russian, The bitter cold.
0: It very much. That's an, it another diff- different...
1: Something we respect about Russians. Yeah. You know, Mother Russia. You just always have these big, brawly Russian men, you know, and they're carrying trees.
0: And women who stop horses while running. Yeah, or <laughs> women, who,
1: women who wrestle horses, <laughs> 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 you know. And this is why when, you, when they come to a hot place, they're like, everybody's so weak. Because mm-hmm. it's just the coldness makes you, in a way, The way, coldness does make you strong because it's not as pleasant you have to like grin and bear it and survive it
0: well it's not just that definitely that and also mm. you could see like in warmer climates there's micro environments and if you look at it, it just even the perception of evolution how how species adapt to environments. Oh, I and love survive. that.
1: I love. Oh, is this is this a natural selection kind of conversation?
0: Kind of natural selection conversation. Where, yes. where,
1: as even as humans, we have to adapt to the environment, and the strong survive. You know, the weak kind of die out. And
0: actually, this is not true. Strong do not survive. The fittest survive. If the weak one is the one that fits the environment, it will survive. So basically, with the adaptation that is. Um, fitting the environment would progress because if it's like the big strong that needs let's say a lot of food then the bigger and stronger may die off and actually I think that's what that's happened to um, some of the prehistoric humans um, that they died off if they were t- because they were too large because it was harder to hunt for food mm-hmm. so the fittest or the one that uh, suits the environment will survive
1: that makes so much sense.
0: But the microenvironments, you can yeah. see, there's so much in culture that I uh, look through the prism of uh, that idea of, again, like a personal reality, but a more of a collective personal reality where like a, there's a certain amount of history and brainwashing and there's a certain amount of the actual in, envir- physical environment that people are connected by. Uh, so the adaptations that they have to deal with, the, the adaptations that they have to, the go f- to go through in order to incorporate into daily living, and also the whole component of, there is an epigenetic component as well, which I don't know if, if you're familiar, familiar with, with epigenetics, but epigenetics is the adaptations uh, of the way in which the DNA is being used or expressed okay. based on interaction with environment. So we could be, let's say, let's ta- take taking the um, zygotic twins. Uh, they could be completely uh, similar genetic uh, composition, right? Completely identical genetic composition. Mm-hmm. But if they were growing up in different environments, that their adaptations and epigen- so epigenetically they would be different. Um, I think there was even studies such as sending uh, twins like sending the twin into space comparing to the twin that was left on Earth and how much of the gene expression was changed. But this is, wow. of course, this is going that's into space. That's so much
1: deeper than nature and nurture. So you're saying... It is nature
0: and nurture. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. But you, you, you bring genetics into it, so it sounds deeper than just... Okay. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Am I, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Coming from someone that doesn't know genetics, Am I? I mean... Mm-hmm. So that's automatically what I assume. But then in space, meaning is there, you are you telling me that they're if they're identical, then their genetic makeup must be very similar. Yes. So wh- when you say the word is epigenetic,
0: epi. So epi means epi above. epigenetic. Mm-hmm.
1: Epi. Okay. Epigenetic. The gene makeup is actually changing. The or is it? Or is
0: genes it? are the same, but everything in genetics like we are genetically very similar to banana and uh, i feel like a banana worm. sometimes <laughs> <Yeah. Elena. laughs> like a vegetable yeah i feel it the, yeah sometimes all i wake, when i wake up in the morning <laughs>
1: i just kind of no, bananas are bananas have energy i have energy and uh you know oh, life we both, yes
0: we mm-hmm. both feel
1: yellow sometimes
0: right well sometimes we are f- all forms of life and uh
1: I'm really trying to make corny jokes here
0: i see yes yeah. <laughs> So, in any case, coming back to um, genetics. So, we're very similar genetically to... Bananas. Bananas. <laughs> well, about 50%. To a worm, to like a deep sea worm.
1: By the way, this fly is really fucking uh, with me.
0: To a fly, you're also very genetically um, comparable to... Drosophila. But dr- Drosophila fly, yes. But w- the difference is largely... And when I say genetically, I'm talking about coding part of the genome, the the part that actually makes the p- proteins. Mm-hmm. The the part is actually what we call expressed. So DNA by itself is just a code, but what does all the work in the body and serves all of the functions is the proteins. But what is different between us is the way that these genes, this code, is used. Okay. It's almost like yeah the ability to read between the lines but it's not exactly between the lines but the ability to truly comprehend and to make something out of that code that is um a a much different level of complexity and this is also achieved by the dark matter of the dna which is the uh, non-coding regions of the dna which are those regions that are still being studied. There's still a lot of unknown in it, and those are the regions that take and use up the information of the DNA in and create this other organism, like human versus a banana. I mean, of course, there's, there's a lot of uh, genetic gap still between in evolution. I think
1: we're completely the same, to be honest. <laughs>
0: too.
1: You know, I don't really see a difference.
0: When did it diverge from? The conversation. Wait, how do we start talking about it? <laughs>
1: about what, bananas?
0: About bananas.
1: Well, you said that bananas are genetically pretty much, are extremely similar to us. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to make jokes about bananas.
0: Right, but the let's come back to the point we were trying to make. Black matter? <laughs> talking Before about. the black matter. Black lives matter? Black lives <laughs> matter. Exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: no, but you we were, you were talking about parts of the genetic code that don't have that don't have um that can't be can't be kind of not counted but checked you're saying there are, there's there are black areas of the
0: yes code but they're actually using what what is really happening that those the black matter of the DNA is what helps us to re, to use the code to utilize the code differently and mm-hmm. that's what makes us ultimately humans versus uh, like monkeys um, versus other primates or mm. mammals. but So this is very interesting. But to even go back to the conversation of how I um, I was in Alaska, so that's how it started. And why am I talking about genetics? Because I ultimately went for a PhD in uh, neurogenetics, in neuroscience, but with a very heavy genetic component. So I'm really is... My specialty is neuro, in neurogenetics and in gene editing using CRISPR technology. Have, are you familiar with the CRISPR?
1: Well, not exactly. We, we spoke about it a bit.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in any case, CRISPR is um, a very cool technology that is now being used in science in order to edit genes and editing of the genes is um the future really of uh, humans fighting the genetic diseases
1: everyday life Mm -hmm. routine waking up in the morning Mm
0: -hmm.
1: how do you find that neuroscience has kind of given you a deeper understanding of of your personal daily life waking up in the morning having a schedule making sure you get the right amount of sleep Mm -hmm. on a deeper scientific level how do those things play out in your life
0: it is definitely. Even uh, remembering myself from that time before I became a scientist mm-hmm. is obviously a completely different person. So that layer of um, all of these gadgets of knowledge that changed my perception of the world through the understanding of science has been a drastic, drastic change, dramatic to who I am and how I see the world, of course. Um, not only I use not just neuroscience just use science and biology in general from many different perspectives in my daily life and I love to call it biohacking which is the term that is used and now it's a very trendy term for using the knowledge of biology and knowledge of science in order to optimize your human performance but i also love the words such as mind hacking and soul hap- hacking which is using different experience in order to enter different states and to change your perceptual personal experience of the reality so that goes into realm of um, some of the practices that I do like you've mentioned sleep I'm very religious about my sleep mm-hmm. people really under evaluate and underestimate how much importance sleep has for brain function Like for, for in studies of I'm not even going to get into it because it's a whole different uh, subject um, this leads me
1: to an interesting question actually mm-hmm. there are a lot of people and this happens to all of us at any given moment when we're in college studying for exams we'll end up you know sleeping till 2 waking up at 6 and you know what i mean not getting the proper amount of sleep because we're studying and i've come to realize and correct me if I, if you think i'm wrong it's so much better to push off that studying for the next day but make sure you get those 8 hours in and keep that constant schedule meaning you know you have to you have a 2 week window to study for a final don't cram it this is obvious don't cram it in the la- all in the last 2 days mm-hmm. you end up getting no sleep you're much less likely to do well. And everyone's like, no shit, Rafi, congratulations. But if you really stick to this plan, and this is not something I stuck to in school. I was not good about this. But if you stick to, say, a two-week window, you give yourself exactly two weeks, and you make sure that at 10 p.m., no matter how much you need to study, you're done for the night, you get those eight hours, and then you do it again. And this way, even though you didn't feel like you really busted your ass you didn't spend you know you didn't Mm -hmm. stay up till 2 2 a.m there's this regimented schedule where you know you're getting the proper sleep you know and that And so my question essentially is will that is that a much better more effective thing to do i mean i would assume without a doubt but what do you think
0: so i think it's a very interesting question and i don't know i wouldn't i don't know much about specific studies in what Best for memory retention, in my perception, it obviously would be better. But especially for long-term effects, proper sleep is very important. But imme- there are immediate effects of improper sleep that are that you would always feel next day. Sure. Um, when the brain is just not optimally functioning. Uh, for short-term memory retention, it could work cramming in the last night. Because next day you w- you may still remember, but forget it the day after, so it's just not uh, best for the long-term memory retention. Mm-hmm. but proper sleep is huge, both in physical performance, in our eating habits, but also in stress responses. and that comes into how we treat ourselves, how we treat others. you know there's just so many facets of how it can play out.
1: That leads me to another question. Mm-hmm. Do you notice how there are some people that always say they're tired no matter what happens? I think there are some people that have a fatigue issue. Mm -hmm. It could be diet, lack of exercise, lack of actual sleep. But I think there are some people mentally that just have this I'm tired attitude. They just are always tired. And if they kind of do it, it maybe for like a pity thing, like feel bad for me. I'm so productive and I'm so busy all the time. I'm so tired. (laughs) But I feel like if you constantly say that, you're going to convince yourself that you're always tired. Does that make sense? On a yes, neurological absolutely. level.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But let me just uh, tap into this a little further. So I th- see it all, all from both perspectives of from the level of mental, intellectual feeding that like pr- projects into the capabilities of the body and the mind. And the physiological perspective. So we are. There's this connection, which is still. I'm not even going to say that I'm speaking from a scientific perspective, because everything that we experience in the daily basis. You you always
1: sound. It always kind of sounds like a scientific.
0: Yes. Was well, it because I have an accent? It no, sound smarter. <laughs> like no, well, maybe, but I think every,
1: you you speak in a way that's very scientific. I feel like it could be a very simple, a very simple thing like a water bottle, and you'll just make it sound like science.
0: It, it is science. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're a nerd at heart.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Everywhere, the heart and the brain. Mm-hmm. So. There is um, the interplay. Everything we experience from the moment we wake up is our conscious experience. But also there is the unconscious part of the experience, which is not well-defined in science. Mm -hmm. And consciousness has been a taboo for studying uh, from a scientific perspective for decades. And um, it was always a realm of spirituality or religion or philosophy. So only recently, comparably recently, the scientists have been trying to embody the consciousness into the fields of biology, into the fields of physics and quantum physics and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. But it's still been a very slow process. But at least now, it used to be that um, like professors at the universities and uh, institutions would advise the younger faculty or younger scientists to to not talk about the subject until maybe they get a tenure. So now, it's not as bad as it used to be. You could still talk they really, about the they subject. They really
1: wouldn't talk about these subjects until they had tenure?
0: Yes, because it was a taboo. It's like, what oh. is consciousness? And is this, you know, just nobody knew how to integrate it into all of this physical reductionist models of our biology mm-hmm. like and now the approach is still well now there is a big movement into understanding consciousness because of the creation of the artificial intelligence and trying to make conscious machines mm-hmm. or at least to make them somewhat human like but also there is still the approach of scientific reductionism of trying to understand consciousness on the level of neurons and connections between the neurons and the molecular releases of the neurotransmitters and specific synapses of the brain and how this somehow creates this experience, right? It is definitely a complex, fundamental question. Mm. But to answer your question about um, like different states of tiredness and... and uh, lack of energy, they're both physicality, both our physical existence and our mental existence, they're constantly interacting. So if you are exhausted from the lack of sleep, then you will have more like reactive oxygen species in the brain. Your uh, Reality would be processed differently. Also, from the energetic perspective, there will be more stress, in, it's just stress molecules in the body. Basically, there would also potentially, like there are studies showing that the night, if you didn't have a good s- sleep at night, or if you had to stay up till late, then evolutionarily it is. Um, it, um, it is the perception of having to hunt for food like it used to be that you w- people wouldn't sleep because they had to hunt for food mm-hmm. like they they were hungry, so that's the only reason why you would be um uh, at night and hungry at night. so then people often overeat the next day because of s- the accumulation of that stress and mm-hmm. the feeling that now they have to eat, they have to hunt for food. So that already messes up the energy systems in the body. And so from the perspective of energy and life is all life is a form of utilization of energy that goes against uh, disorder into self-organizing ordered system, basically. Um, so, going, moving away from entropy into using the energy in order to self organize. So, everything in life, in life is about using energy and smart using en- of energy. So, there is another very nice point that I'd like to make that everything in life tries to be very efficient. Evolution itself is very efficient. Mm-hmm. So, it would try to achieve any process. Uh, would try to be achieved with the minimal amount of effort necessary in order to come to a specific outcome. Mm-hmm. What I see a lot in our nowadays human existence and our models of uh, <coughs> human behavior is that we tend to have almost like the evolution, our physiological genetic, biological, uh, evolutionary state is not keeping up with the level of development of uh, technology and change of lifestyle that we have. Does it make sense? Like we are bombarded with amounts of information on everyday basis that probably humans 100 years ago didn't experience in a lifetime of how much they have to process in a day.
1: (laughs) But I think that's why it's such a pro and con though. Because mm-hmm. back in the day, it was more simplistic where you focus on three tasks a day. You know, you pick corn, you mow the lawn, you change it. Di- well, if there weren't even diapers back then. But well, uh, <laughs> whatever form of diapers they had, there was something, I'm sure. They, they were, There were m- much fewer things to do because you couldn't accomplish as much back then. So in a sense, our brains, this is why we have such bad ADD now. So many people have such a hard time focusing on so many things i th- and i think we're kind of forced to so some right. people can but i think for many people we just end up doing 20 things very poorly and attempting to get get them all done at the same time
0: that's very much but if you also think about it uh it's the everything requires energy mm-hmm. and the most efficient could be again like looking at nature <coughs> is doing less in order to achieve something. But then we could look at the evolution of the brain, too, and that constant, first of all, the amounts of stress and then uh, constant bombardment by a lot of tasks and multitasking that we're still, our brain still is, like evolution does not move so fast to catch up with technological mm-hmm. progress. So we still, even with development of, let's say, uh, microchips and I would say the um, holographic reality, uh, the virtual reality systems. Like, w- if you look at the studies, brain cannot keep up. Like, it messes with the brain in a way that when you wear in, let's say, um, the virtual reality and its um, gadgets, and the
1: messes it, with the brain.
0: Oh, absolutely! First of like, all, it, it will mess for, because there are signals. We obviously hmm. evolved to live in this. Yeah. Reality. I gotta tell this to
1: my one of my friends. I don't have any of these things. I couldn't, these things do not, like VR, I don't know, it doesn't entice, I don't care about video games or any of those things anymore. When I was younger, I cared, but mm-hmm. I have a friend that's crazy about this whole VR stuff. He I mean, he bought this whole crazy gizmo that was worth like, who knows how much, a couple of thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So go on, because I'm very curious, because hopefully he'll be listening to this. So it ef- negatively affects the brain.
0: Somewhat, yes. And I think I think it is quite enticing. I mean, of course, you can experience a different reality. I think it could be quite helpful, too, especially with things like...
1: the virtual reality, if, yes, you, if you will.
0: Yes, yes. It could be very helpful to even, I could imagine, with um, some syndromes like phantom limb syndrome. Sorry? Uh, like people who have amputated limbs... But they still have phantom pain, which is like a pain oh, in a that non-existent doesn't actually limb. Exist. Yes, so mm. there are studies that how it could be cured with a mirror effect, mm-hmm. like having a mirror to uh, show as if you're moving the limb that is still there, mm-hmm. and uh, having to like basically evaluate the reality that would help to integrate that those signals to in the brain, in, in the cortex, in order to lose that sensation of pain in non existent limb. Mm-hmm. But in any case is diverting conversation. Uh one of the shortcomings is that the virtual reality is still I mean, it could be potentially as real as this reality, but at this time it is not. So then there is the incongruence of the incorporation of the signals that come from, let's say, visual processing. And visual processing is one of the most, um, is probably the most of the, the basal system that consciousness, uh, or like the brain relies onto compared to other systems, mm-hmm. sensory systems. So even, so if the visual signal, so the, the brain would prefer visual to to rely on visual signal and that's what i'm trying to say if the motors uh the motor orientation uh, like the balancing systems are given other signals than what you're perceiving with your visual reality let's say in the virtual reality if you are like if you have to if you're falling down okay but you're actually standing on the ground in the physical reality then there is a incongruence between signals that come from the visual senses.
1: Um, right, I, I totally understand. It's, it's incongruent because in the virtual world you're falling, in the real world you're you're not, you're staying yeah, there. So, then so the brain is kind of like exactly. what's going on. Exactly,
0: it's almost like it could, it, it definitely gi- uh, gives headaches. <laughs> but uh, long term, I don't know, I haven't looked so much into the studies, but uh, I can imagine that um, there are just some shortcomings to that
1: it's completely it's confusing the brain because the brain maybe doesn't know what's actually going on
0: absolutely um absolutely but then so going back to that notion of people when they start telling themselves stories like if i'm constantly tired i'm constantly tired and how does it affect uh the physical experience or the actual conscious experience oh i can say i, I, can, can, I can tell you
1: sorry i'm interrupting mm-hmm. just, i can tell you like point blank sometimes i've gone like a f- several days straight without sleep worst horrible experience you just you, you feel like an absolute zombie you're just like grabbing onto the last bits of energy you have to like actually yeah it's horrible
0: Yes, absolutely. But also convincing yourself just uh, mentally that you're tired. If you, if you are completely normal and you keep up with your schedule, but you have that uh, mindset of not having um, not having enough energy, so uh, I think part of it could be coming, like I was saying, from just too much information that is feeding into the brain, and often from uh, unconscious, unconsciously processed uh, sources of information. So then. What is also being bombarded in that case is what is called the default brain network, which is, um, I don't know if you ever heard about it, but it's, uh, and I'm by far I'm not an expert on it, it's more of the cognitive neuroscience uh, field and uh, it's called functional connectivity studies, mm-hmm. which are usually derived from the magnetic resonance imaging or the observation of the blood flow in the brain and correlation of that blood flow with the um, um, activity of the brain, different brain regions based on tasks. So default mode brain network is the way that brain functions, uh, how the blood flows to the brain on average, when it doesn't do much, like mm. rest, it's called resting state. It doesn't do much it's not per, perhaps doing any specific tasks and um, during it, and how I would describe it perhaps is again it's a network in the sense that like is the pattern of the brain how different regions are used to communicating with one another and um, so okay, so in that sense, almost forty percent of the blood flow goes into that default mode brain network which is also perceived as the uh center not a center or sort of like the creator of the ego construct or the perception of the self and preoccupation with the self in the brain which i think it's also quite exhausting it's just my personal personal statement i think it's quite exhausting to be um, obsessed with those ideas of the self Mm -hmm. and it, it. the more you think about it, the more you are engaged into that default mode brain network and thinking about the self, which is like usually it's thinking about yesterday or thinking about tomorrow. Thinking Overthinking.
1: About are you are you kind t- t- of talking about that?
0: You could call it that. So um, what do
1: because what do you mean exactly by th- over th- like thinking of the self?
0: Well, it's usually preoccupation by um, so like the dangers, you know, constantly thinking um, about. Things that happened in the past Mm. and how to avoid the bad things that happened in the past in the future and how to avoid uh, uh, or how to seek out the pleasure in the future that would be beneficial to the self and self-survival and preoccupation with the self itself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do think I hear what you're (laughs) saying. I actually think I'm following you, Mm -hmm. but I'm just trying to make sure I understand you. I think some people are going to be are going to be confused about what you said, though.
0: So, again, default mode brain network is uh, so sort of the combination of the activity of the brain or the pattern of the activity of the brain that is uh, at resting state, at normal state of uh, our daily function, is preoccupied with the perception of the self, which is the daily uh, tasks of what needs to be done in order to. Basically to survive for ego to survive for self to survive it is preoccupied with its own personality with uh, the uh, questions of the past that could be useful for the future of like how to in a sense ho- how to use experiences of the past in order to seek enjoyment uh, and avoid pain in the future mm-hmm. as well. so that's like the kind of processing that is happening and it's it's a pattern of activity and it interestingly takes up up to 40 percent is like the small the combination of the small regions takes up to 40 percent of the whole energy of the brain that goes it feeds into that network which means that if the person is overthinking um and constantly preoccupied or uh, by those matters of being worrying about the future because of the experiences of the past and not being in the present moment mm-hmm. then uh, <coughs> The more energy goes into, then it's going to be is going to be experienced as like a mental fatigue, but it's actually also an energy fatigue as well. And interestingly, those default mode brain networks are altered in uh, the states of let's say deep meditation. So we know that uh, the those ego centers of the brain, or at least the way we see it right now are being um, subsided, subsided, as well as it happens during psychedelic experiences such as psilocybin um, or magic mushrooms experiences, when it specifically affects that brain conic- connectivity and specifically affects the alteration of the default mode brain network, which is also uh, combined and correlated with those experiences of dissolution of the ego and experiences of oneness, experiences of being fully present and integrated in the present moment.
1: Look, I have a question. Would you not say in a sense that this is a virtual reality? Meaning, somebody on that's done, somebody that's done magic mushrooms, I don't know what I'm calling them, magic mushrooms, shrooms. Someone that's done shrooms on several occasions will be like, not at all. It's not like you're wearing some VR machine. It's part of you. Your brain is expanding, but That isn't your everyday reality. Meaning it might be what's actually happening, but you aren't conscious of it when you aren't on it. You get what I'm saying? Meaning right now I'm not on shrooms. I am not going to feel what I'm where. I'm not going to feel what I feel if I'm on it. You get what I'm saying? So is that a virtual reality or is that just actual reality? But um, since I don't experience it in my daily life, it seems virtual. This is something that I feel like, Tons of people ask, but uh, here um, now we wait for your answer.
0: I I can see that. I I can see that as a question that doesn't have an answer because it obviously would be, like, what is the truth? Is this reality real? Uh, I don't think anybody has, and nobody has an answer to this question, Mm -hmm. but it (coughs) is absolutely Mm -hmm. intriguing to... To know that the experiences of those reports of being on magic mushrooms, it's a feeling that that reality is more real than this reality. But also, I think what matters or how we could approach understanding this is, it really is altered states of consciousness overall. And there are so many different uh, expressions of altered states of consciousness, of course, from the loss of consciousness, like in a coma, to... Vegetative states, locked in syndrome, when the person is conscious but not able to move the body, or mm-hmm. unable to give any signals, <coughs> to psychedelic experiences and experiences such as uh, psilocybin triggered um, or LSD triggered experiences, to also things like uh, near death experiences, which is also like. Maybe could be integrated under umbrella of altered states of consciousness. They always
1: talk about the uh, life flashing before your eyes. There's a lot in Judaism specifically. I, mean, I can't speak for other religions, mm-hmm. but there's there's always co- this concept of right before they died, they were on their deathbed and they saw life flash before their eyes, and they saw, you know, everything f- that happened in their life just flash at once. Right. And th- then I've heard this outside of Judaism. I've heard people make this claim in general, where you know, or they see or they see the angel of death, or they see some scary mm-hmm. being, or deity, or some. Of well,
0: sorts. I would definitely leave this to a different conversation, but I would <laughs> uh, I would invite people to look up some signs of uh, even a like YouTube videos of research on near death experiences. Uh, I think it's from Pennsylvania Institute, and I don't remember exactly the name, but uh, there are scientific approaches of studying those near death experiences and those reports. Mm-hmm and it is quite interesting. But going back to experiencing reality on mushrooms versus on a daily basis, like there are other ways to alter reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I'm truly trying to say is there's this extreme and this extreme of the psychedelic reality versus the extreme of, okay, like just the very average normal reality. But then there's the experience in, the, in between, there is uh, a range, and there's a spectrum. So from that extreme, that extreme can also be different based on um, the dosage. There's a dose effect. There's an effect of environment. There's an effect of um, like f- physiologically where the person starts from taking those mushrooms, whether it's a fasted state, a tired mm-hmm. state whether there is an intention or not. Then there is this reality. This reality is also, I think perhaps most people experience it. The reality overall is um, somewhat uh, similar from day-to-day basis. And mostly, I think it comes from the modus of the brain function. Like brain is a very intelligent intelligently designed, I wouldn't say brain, I would say nervous system and just the a actual a whole organism It's uh, by itself is intelligently designed system. So from that perspective, um, brain likes to create shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the shortcuts f- come from past experiences, of course. So there is, an, is enough significant amount of experience for the brain to create a shortcut to experience it in a certain way.
1: Does this, can this be, this makes me think of, th- when you say shortcut, do you mean that you're so used to a certain thing that it becomes second nature? Is that anything, or what are you talking yes, about?
0: Yes, of course, like, I mean, so it's almost like first it takes a struggle in order to acquire yes. a skill.
1: Ah, okay, so that's exact. Uh, so we have a thing called the four levels in real estate, well, it's not specifically. It's not real estate specifically, but this is what we've we've learned, and I've I've heard this before, but it's been very applicable. Now, what I do is the the notion of of unconscious incompetence. Then you have unconscious competence. Then you have, um, unco- I'm sorry, uh, conscious incompetence, unconscious competence, and I think conscious competence. I think I'm, I think I said this properly, but essentially you go through these four stages, where initially you don't know what you don't know, then you mm, don't know what you do I know. About. Then you, then you know what, you, uh, uh, then you know what you know, meaning like you know what kind of know what you're doing, but you still have to kind of work at it. And then there's a stage where you know exactly what's going on. You don't even have to really put effort into it. It's just this subconscious movement, and you can get to any that that point in most aspects of your life, specifically driving really gives me that feeling mm-hmm. where in the beginning you've, you're you really just trying, you're paying attention to every little detail. And then once you're on the highway after, you know, even a few months of driving, especially after a few years, you'll find yourself forgetting that you're even driving. You'll kind of drift off for a moment. You get what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. And your
1: brain is, and you're fully aware. It's How does that work? So that you're a perfect person to ask. How does your brain still focused, because you part of your brain is completely focused on the road you're still you know you're, you're the wheel is still turning you know slightly you're 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 driving perfectly fine but you'll drift off and start thinking about like strawberries and then you'll zoom back in and be like oh wow i'm on the highway how does that happen
0: exactly well <laughs> again it's, it's very intricate but uh, like i said brain is extremely intelligent nervous system is very mm-hmm. intelligent intelligently designed so at first um i mean these are more- motor skills which i think are a little more um easier to comprehend or easy easier understood
1: the motor skills in russia they're not a lot they they have a tough time The drinking in, in russia um, so they they had not they s- the motor skills aren't always on point
0: right <laughs> well so the part <laughs> of the brain that is largely responsible for um learning motor movements, or for coordinated and uh, balance uh, for coordination and balance is called cerebellum which is one of the most primary parts in the back of the brain mm-hmm. and it's a sep- separate from cortex and from other systems so that uh, part of the brain uh, is responsible for a l- it's very intricately designed it's so complex I, I don't think I could possibly explain it in uh Intelligible way, but it's just designed through a mastery of feedback loops, constantly sending out the signals, and those signals are sent out through neurons and combination of networks from a, an information that is being put in or the input processing and output. So constantly receiving the information from the sensory nerves. And both from vision, uh, from uh, the proprioception, from proprioceptive systems, uh, sensing the environment, and then going through the process of feedback or inhibition of the unnecessary movement. So then once the process becomes becomes automatic, um, the conscious part of it or paying attention to how it's done is being removed so it's now you really don't need to like it, it becomes yes it becomes exact nature it's because it becomes unconscious process
1: and it's fat it's it's fascinating how that works and it's also fascinating that it can be something that's very hard to do very hard to do you know it can be taking a, a trick bike and going over on this um what do they call them people who do these tricks are gonna be like yeah hey, yeah you don't know what it's called what are those things called again um, oh my God anyway, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Yes. I used to know but right away, but I forgot uh, use something or whatever so they go on they, they, they do all these tricks and these flips and these I mean if they if they land wrong they can break like all their bones like half the bones in their body or they can be seriously injured. Second nature they've been practicing this for years they've landed on their on their back on their legs, broken bones but after a certain period of time mm-hmm. they just go they take to get on the bike and they do it. For for your average person, they look at that and they're like, "Holy shit! I'm not trying that." They they don't even f- they can't even try to or surfing or you know anything going in, going to battle, going as a, you know going to war as a soldier. For some people, it's second nature.
0: Very much so, and, it's and crazy. it is for us. Uh, I mean, walking becomes our second nature, like you know, eating, brushing hair, all of that. Mm-hmm. But what I find really interesting is uh, if you. St- try to think about it or like explain it to somebody you know when you're trying to teach somebody of like what exactly you're doing and you go back to trying mm-hmm. to replicate it with a conscious engagement often happens it's like you don't know what you're doing and you forget if you try to drive and to explain what you're doing by language and mm-hmm. stopping by and consciously saying well i do this first so like then often you would find yourself like I don't really know what I'm doing. It's almost like you forgot how to drive immediately because it's actually the unconscious process now that is so natural, and the consciousness actually doesn't know what is, is even going on. Well, I
1: could explain it personally, but I, I mean, I, we're talking about driving specifically. But I'm sure there are things like I can explain how to drive to someone.
0: Okay, but <laughs> sorry, let's just sorry,
1: t- <laughs> did I kill your did I kill your point? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You Let gave you me, me an example. Let me give another
0: example. So if you ask someone to smile, but they're not really feeling cheerful uh then the smile would be you know i think you could obviously tell like it would be different or you wouldn't be smiling with your eyes it would look fake Mm -hmm. because there are different parts of the brain that are responsible for like conscious smiling Mm -hmm. or like trying to fake it versus the actual natural smile Are those
1: real these those
0: can you tell (laughs) i think so i think it seems real to
1: me i hope so
0: so going back to the conversation of what is real between the the range of the between the psychedelic experiences and other states of altered states of consciousness mm-hmm. which I was about to tap into to say there uh, they could be states of prolonged fasting or I mean, your mind is super clear and relieved from all this amounts of energy that go into digestion. I don't know if you experienced that. I've practiced quite a bit with fasting myself and I love it as a tool for altering Brain performance and uh, we do it human in performance. Mm-hmm. We have very good, yes, that's we right. We just had
1: one that passed recently, Yom Kippur.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: So, I'd, yeah, oh, it's like a 25 hour fast. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's a few of them throughout the year.
0: So, another one is um, states of flow states of flow, um, such as induced by extreme sports, or they could be really induced by other. Um, experiences even walking or listening to music it's spontaneous states of when you also in a way like your ego dissolves you're being fully in the moment and those are very similar to psychedelic experiences as well you know like being fully in the moment uh, to experiences of meditation and meditators Mm -hmm. like it's going away from this default mode brain network and being preoccupied so much with the self and being preoccupied so much with the past and the future versus being in the moment and full experience in reality what I'm really trying the point that I'm trying to make is that you could consciously alter and like what is really consciousness if one of the definitions could be the attention and, and where attention flows, energy goes and you could actually facilitate the states of mind and the states of body that uh, underline those states of mind by conscious improvement and diverting of your attention to specific thoughts because thought creates a pattern of feeling. Feeling creates biochemistry Mm -hmm. of uh, emotion. It could be stress hormones. It could be other types of hormones. But I think we often live in the reality that is uh, underlined by our baseline biochemical state Mm -hmm. and the state of neurotransmitters um, and the receptors for those neurotransmitters. I know I'm just, maybe I'm talking gibberish to some people, but let's say the, the why psilocybin has such an effect on the brain it's very intricate that something in nature exists that has such a profound effect on perception of reality when ingested by humans and not only by humans. And um, Do you mean animals? Animals too, yes. Well, I mean obviously. There are definitely so studies of what is I it? Don't remember. Does it? <laughs> I think there was like I think it was a like, there's alone L S D study you should look into that. Yeah, but what are it? <laughs> why would they even
1: test out a, a fruit fly? I don't know. On, I don't know. Shru- I, like I what's it going to do fly around a little? I mean like experiment on an animal that actually has more emotion, not like a little insect, right. but I understand. an animal that'll actually like a cat or a dog or I mean I feel bad. That's also what it, like with a fly genuinely I don't feel bad testing on flies. But when it comes to those animals like I don't want them to feel any kind of pain. So
0: Absolutely. So it's just me. But perhaps they experience the sense of oneness and happiness I mean, <laughs> the, under already, those experiences.
1: Dogs are already on shrooms all the time, anyway.
0: So <laughs> you know, I mean, they're always is so happy and beautiful. So of those, interestingly, those the what is, it, is this the serotonin two A receptors that are largely expressed in the neocortex and it's specifically in the very outer layers of neocortex mm-hmm. um, that are being um, uh, that have basically that are to which the psilocybin molecules bind to, and uh, basically they zap those areas of the brain. And uh, speaking from the perspective of the evolution, the neocortex is this, the la- the latest um, the latest adaptation. Not only that, cortex was evolving throughout uh, throughout in mammals, in the primates. But then the, the grooves of the cortex is what really the, the enfoldings um, of the cortical brain is what differs us largely from, the, from other animals. So imagine that that part is zapped. And um, those are naturally existing receptors in the brain. So they could also be, I mean, th- th- even from the studies of the neuroimaging, from the neuroimaging perspective, nothing large is so comparable to when on large doses on psilocybin, but meditation states could be similar. Like You can induce these states by yourself. You have the receptors for it. You have the molecules mm-hmm. uh, that are... Un- that are that you are able, by diverting the attention, and again, by diverting the attention, let's say from the self, from the thought obsessed by self, the thought obsessed with the past, the thought obsessed with the future, so the default b- mode brain network, if you consciously divert that attention, and um, I call it mind hacking and biohacking, But you could know your triggers, or know certain disciplines, uh, routines that you do. To me, it could be like doing akra yoga, or dancing, or it could actually be meditation, and specifically diverting from uh, first, like silence in the mind, uh, completely shutting down any thoughts that come about the past, or the future, or the self, and then you can induce those states. You can induce them. But then the more you change your biochemistry, you also, you adapt to, like, the brain is extremely adaptive system and the human body as well. Genetics are very adaptive. There will be changes in gene expression happening immediately. And there could also be patterns of gene expression that are lasting, going back to epigenetics question and epigenetic marks that uh, will happen with practice. So in order to, it comes back to the question of like, how can I experience that on a daily basis? Is that real? Well, you could cultivate those feelings and states that are not maybe truly, could not be like high doses of psilocybin, but they could be very similar in a way that your reality can be completely different and much more magical in that sense. Just by you diverting your attention, conscious attention, you also change your biochemistry, uh, the amount of uh, receptors for those neurotransmitters, and the activity of the brain network, as well as the pattern of gene expression, just by changing your thinking.
1: How do you? How would you say? Because I, because I think this is very relatable to the male and female gender. mm Hmm. Now, when it, we talk, if we were to talk about relationships, how do you think this ties in? Say, if we're talking about neurotransmitters in in reference to our negative experiences, positive experience too. But let's say we have a traumatic experience with abusive parents mm-hmm. or an abusive spouse. How do we train our minds to then? In for you know in future relationships, not carry that over.
0: Right. I and mean, that's
1: a very that's he- very heavy conversation. It can be. I'm curious f- to hear about this, but any kind of negative trait where maybe somebody w- was in a relationship that somebody wasn't faithful to them, and then going forward they have these trust issues. So f- they may kind of they may spill over into that new relationship, and the relationship may suffer because of the bad experiences that person had. So. What are ways that we can train our mind to, and, and it's maybe impossible to fully train our mind to, to ignore this because it happened, but how can we, in, a, in the general sense, train our brains to let go of or at least control these experiences so we now have more of a positive experience with our current or future Uh, partner, or spouse?
0: Right. That is a great, (coughs) great question. I think it's so important in any relationships. Thank you, ma'am. Not only uh, relationships of genders, friendships, and um, there is huge potential, I think, in the power of knowledge and the power of knowledgeable, intelligible practices in order to to truly relieve that part of... uh, The part of that suffering human existence that perpetuates uh, in the patterns of relationships. So there is a part of the brain, evolutionarily, that is uh, the reptilian brain, right? Mm -hmm. Our reptilians (laughs) don't care about their offspring. They don't care about uh, their partners. Mm -hmm. They definitely just don't give a damn. And then there's the limbic system, which is very specific to, in th- that sense, to, um, to mammals. And it's the emotional brain, and all of us have it. The emotional brain, which is um, largely learning by avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. Seeking anything that's going to benefit life and procreation, and avoiding anything that can damage the organism and <coughs> kill it or cause pain mm-hmm. so that system when we are still developing as children in the childhood it is so largely important because the neocortex the cortical regions and the whole what we call the connections or the myelination mm-hmm. the myelin is the white matter the wrapping around the nerves the axons of the nerves mm-hmm. that um, protects and helps with the signaling Mm -hmm. helps with the communication in the brain it keeps happening throughout teenage years up until (coughs) i think almost like 25 years of age and the myelination goes in the back of the brain to the like prefrontal cortex so the emotional brain is at the very like kind of like center right on top of the brain stem and then there is it is developing by learning these first experiences of pleasure and pain Mm -hmm. so it is very unconscious those are very fast reactions that as brain evolves and the myelination occurs in more evolved parts of the brain the inhibitory or the more of the higher processing occurs and also like those parts of the brain that I was telling you about like that are zapped during psychedelic experiences. Mm-hmm. Those are the invigorated parts of the brain that would also be responsible for uh, the processing of the emotion, the reaction to that emotion, the meaning and the interpretation of that emotion. Mm-hmm. But before that happens, the experiences are so imprinted in early childhood mm-hmm. because children uh, in, a, in that sense are unable to process and to to stand outside of themselves, plus children don't even have, an, let's say, ego develops as a construct after maybe three years of age, so they don't know what is I, right, and then I begins, and you are this that self, and then, then you wonder what that self is, and the perception of the self, and how to also preserve it, how to protect that self, and it is, uh, there are models of behavior, anything it goes way into like psychology, and um, again, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on it. But the way I see it is the importance of practices to be able to, w- which are in therapy are called inner child practice. The inner child therapy um, is by altering, uh, going back into experiences, and not necessarily even going back into experiences, but tapping into that those responses and reactions of Pain versus pleasure, or fear—those very primal emotions of fear, uh, emotions of anger. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Its preoccupation with safety from the more evolved place, and more, uh, more evolved place. What we would call, I guess, top-down approach from a more evolved regions of the brain and our consciousness, but. I think amazing therapy that is being used. Hypnosis is very extremely powerful, and it taps into this idea of remodeling f- past experiences. You could go back into the memory in a way you can change the reaction to to in your within your memory, the reaction to the trigger that caused it, and then it would not cause that same reaction. It would not be that unconscious trigger when a similar situation arises. When you're talking about perpetuating the past maybe experiences of lack of trust into the future relationships. In a way, like you could work with um, past incident in order to change, to transform the emotional reaction of the past by, again, by altered states of consciousness. That's why psychedelics are also so powerful on the studies of patients with PTSD (laughs) who've been uh, in the war psychedelics are much more potent than any other therapist, and they have a much more lasting effects just from one session. But as what, well if it, as what
1: if it brings a negative? Like, who's to say that the, that the mushrooms aren't going to bring on more of a negative feeling? Let's say you watched your friend... I'm just being very direct. What if you watched your friend die in front of you? You take mushrooms to try to forget about that experience, and what if it intensifies? Who's to say that it So
0: I think a combination of the therapy... With a gui- guided therapy with uh, guided
1: mushroom therapy, if you will. Yes. Do you yes. teach a mushroom guided therapy class? No,
0: I don't. I should. You should. Um, but there was also there were uh, there were also studies. There were also studies of using MDMA with the PTSD psychotherapy, which mm. is also a much more enhanced, uh, much more powerful experience of a relief from that emotional attachment. So it's always about the direction. Of that experience, and often is the attention, because it, psychedelic experiences they take you into that place of very focused attention uh, on whatever it is that that consciousness is being drawn to in the moment, mm-hmm. so you could divert that attention, so it's good to have some sort of guidance it, but ultimately, consciousness may itself resolve uh, resolve it on its own. I think what matters most in in this case is in the idea of how to be the best, to have optimal relationships by not dragging the traumas of the inner child into relationships is first is the awareness, is knowing that there is this part that is very primitive and that is always like scared and attached. And the awareness itself is already a big step forward but then knowing that there are practices that I think should be practices mental hygiene on everyday basis and uh, people mental should hygiene, know about that's a very them. interesting word there, sh- there should be yes mm-hmm. there should be taught in schools and now I think there is some change in the ways that meditation is being taught in some schools mm-hmm. so meditation should be uh, really incorporated into everyday life just like you take a shower if you ta- if you feel Nasty in the mornings or in the evenings after a long day of sweaty Miami weather, mm-hmm. you know, you take a shower. The same way with uh, the brain and the mental, with your consciousness, it's so important to take the showers, and we're so not a used mental to that. Shower. We're so not used to that. We're not taught in our society to do that, and it really should be one of the fundamental, fundamental practices, as well as uh, some of the practices of self work of, um, like I said, hypnosis is a very powerful practice of Mm -hmm. sort of like these guided experiences when it's more not just silencing the the mind, not just coming to inner uh, quietness, but also to actually redirecting and diverting those experiences from the emotionality of responses to a more conscious, more evolved responses and integration. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I think psychedelics are great for that as well. As well as I think it's very intricate to understand, I'm just quickly going to say brain has, or neuroscience has, may give a lot of answers to human relationships in the sense that I think people should be aware that there is a whole realm of like brain disorders, really, and some of them are, the fundamental triggers are stress, It's not even disorder, but in our society, I think it could be called a disorder. Stress is the worst, um, the strongest factor uh, that affects human relationships. People under stress become they go back to the limbic system to that primitive mind to the primitive brain and they're just not able to have this inhibitory higher and functions and oh, they go into, into the into stress mode and it's such a big question oh, it, goes it goes deserves a like topic. a whole different conversation but people under stress are not their higher version of themselves yes.
1: Oh this is such a conversation for another episode.
0: It is so important to have those practices to deal Close with stress finger. and to be aware how to engage in relationships and to to first of all to perceive that you're under stress and to understand how not to harm the relationships because of being being in that limbic mode, being in that mm-hmm. you know stress survival mode. And it's nowadays we also being stressed by things that we're not even meant to be stressed about. Like I said, the overwhelm of information, the overwhelm of multitasking, the overwhelm of stimuli, even by checking uh, Facebook and Instagram, Mm -hmm. um, which gives way too much... It overdrives the limbic system, actually, also because it's so dopamine-driven. It's Mm -hmm. so driven on that emotional motivation responses from uh, perceptual stimuli and having a little a uh, zap of dopamine spike. And again, it's a whole other different conversation. But okay. the neuroscience uh, can give answers to human relationships also from the standpoint of some brain disorders. Not only the hijacked state of the brain, but also some disorders that might not be very visible. They're not, they're not visible to to us, to, to a human eye such as mild traumatic brain injuries, Mm. which there is a a whole amount of studies on that, as well as how it affects, uh, it could affect, again, emotional processing. It may affect the, uh, just the attention span of of humans, like different mild, even when you're just in the car and you suddenly stop. Like brain is such a soft soft tissue, so it, it bumps against the skull and depending on where the site of injury that micro injury is there could be very specific areas that are responsible for very specific tasks Mm -hmm. and that would play out in relationships so um, there is this whole other realm and then there is the realm of our evolutionary adaptation to seeing life differently from the perspective also from the two different modes of the like I would call the right brain and the left brain, which is largely seen in the studies of the split brain patients. When in back in sixties, they used to do the procedure of separating the two brain hemispheres uh, by cutting the corpus callosum that would uh, connect the two hemispheres, and they could see how the scientists could see on the patients that even though patients seem to preserve their one personality, their one idea of um, the w- being that same self, mm-hmm. they still had very different responses to um, certain tasks. And like if they were shown a word to the right hemisphere with the left eye or to the stimulus to the left eye, um and they were, they were not able to perceive it consciously because the language centers that are situated in the left side of the brain were, um, were not aware of the word because the right hemisphere basically were not able to communicate it to the language centers. Mm-hmm. But if the patients were asked to draw that uh, word, they would be able to draw it, like to actually have an, to draw an image of it. So they were like had the knowledge of it, but did not have the perception. When they were asked uh, they could also be given an order that would only arrive through the left eye Um, so then it would go into right hemisphere and they would start implementing that order such as walking out of the room like they were asked to walk out of the room and the patient would when asked why are they walking out of the room they would come up with uh, an explanation because left brain has to come up with rationalization and it's like kind of like very particular function of the left hemisphere is more of the rationalizing and seeing things in parts rather than the more generalized, the big vision type of uh, uh, the right hemisphere perception and more emotionally processed perception from the right hemisphere. But this is when uh, the phenomenon of what we would call now left brain interpreter came into place, which is that rationalization part of the brain that I think all of us have, but we're not aware of. And we're also so very much driven to be um, to be more logically thinking, to use our language skills much more than more of intuitive and imaginary uh, perception of the reality and, and interpretation of the reality just by our culture, or at least in the West culture opposed to the East culture. And the left-brain interpreter, I believe, is one of those very damaging factors in human relationships because it is very much preoccupied with having consistent narratives that help the ego, the sense of self, the sense of personality to sustain itself. So they could have patterns that come from that very primitive part of the mind, very primitive part of the brain, limbic system, Mm -hmm. you know, based on their fears, based on... um, Again, some of those primitive drives, but they would explain it. Let's say somebody has an addiction, Mm -hmm. which is also part of the limbic Mm -hmm. system being hijacked. It could be an alcohol addiction. It could be a porn addiction, but let's say it's a problem. Usually addiction is a problem for a relationship. And um, the left brain interpreter would always come up with a story that just helps the ego feel better about itself and to, let's say, to to not incorporate that idea of how to evolve in a relationship or how how to be a better person in a relationship versus to to keep up with that story. So I think it's this other big area in which is important for humans to look into is this understanding of our brain function from the perspective of being optimally supported, being optimally physically supported, having those practices for mental cleansing and having practices for uh, supporting physical body, but also understanding how mind, we're, we're so tricked um, in our perceptions and uh, it's a beautiful area, a necessary area to explore in ourselves in order to become like this well-rounded, human with a much more richer experience of reality and understanding of compassion and relation to each other
1: sure i think that that's, that was beautifully said i really liked what you said about taking a mental shower you know you mentioned f- taking a physical one obviously when needed and mm-hmm. then you know mentioned the correlation to to your mental health and i think everything you're saying is you know, very deep and very scientific, but I think it it really gives an understanding as to why we do what we do and how we can better ourselves, especially in relationships. So, Elena, it's been a wonderful episode. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Learned a ton. I hope Thank everyone did advice. as well. Guys, a lot of us don't know enough about science. Try to mm-hmm. take the time to actually listen um, to what she has to say. And okay, even if you don't know some of the scientific terms, you might miss a few sentences. Try to listen to the gist of the, of the conversation. Everything we do kind of comes down... doesn't kind of. Everything we do is connected to science. Everything in this world has a connection. And if we start to understand that, we can better understand ourselves, you know? So, without further ado, or not without further ado, but again, thank you so much. Hope to have you on for another episode because I know there's a lot more we can talk about. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, This has been another episode of Soothing Semantics. Until next time.